probably six or seven years ago, uh, one of my best friends started having these, these really weird things happen in his life uh, that his wife took notice of. He was drinking a ton of water, which he didn't normally do. He's a Diet Coke drinker, just constantly thirsty and drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking water. And, uh, and then I guess subsequent to that, then he's got to get up and pee a lot, right? And like all throughout the day, in the middle of the night, his hunger, his hunger was weird it was fluctuating and she's like, and she's, she's in the medical world and she's like, something's wrong with you. Like you, you got cancer or something like you got to go to the doctors. And finally he goes to the doctors and they're like, Oh, your sugar level is like 600. Like late onset diabetes, just 37 years old or whatever, just out of nowhere. And so, you know, when you hit the reality of that, as some of you know, uh, when you hit the reality of that, you realize that, okay, the rest of life is different. And you have this diagnosis, and now you're going to have to do something about it, right? Change the way you eat. In theory, lots of people don't, but you can change the way that you eat. You have to face this reality of, of wearing an insulin pump for the rest of your life. And this, this injection, when you need it, to bring you back into an even keel blood sugar level, right? Um, there's this, this daily upkeep that has to happen to keep you healthy. And it's doable. Praise God for modern medicine and like, you know, pumps that you can control with an app on your phone. Now like it's just wild. Like it's just some stuff that wasn't even possible 10 years ago. And so it's just this new reality of this internal problem that needs an external fix, right, of some sort to regulate it. Today, what I want to talk about is a passage where James gets into the idea of dealing with temptation. And where we're going to land is that temptation is actually an internal problem, having to do with our corrupt desires, and that there's this internal problem that we need to face the reality of and live in the truth of and have the truth of God, the gospel, come in and be the outside source of medicine that we need to deal with this problem in our lives. Last week, we, we talked about, uh, and we weren't here, but hopefully you watched it or listened to it later. I talked about suffering, how James calls us to endure suffering, endure trials of, of various kinds, count it as joy, somehow equate it as joy. And what we talked about in there is that through the gospel, when we die to self and we, we you know, go to our cross, we actually find redemption, we find this maturity that comes out of it, this Christ-likeness that can come through that if we go through it with our eyes and single-minded focus on God, not to mention the resurrection hope that we have in going through suffering, that someday it will be no more. And today, like I said, I want to talk about the, the next sort of passage that he connects here for us using the same word instead of trials is temptation. And I want to talk about the diagnosis of it, facing the reality of it, and, and how to deal with it. And if you're like me, and I assume most of you are, that you have temptations in your life. You have things on a daily basis that creep in and tempt you towards inappropriate or ungodly or unholy, whatever you want to say, behavior. Have you ever thought, why do I keep doing these same dumb things? I've been a Christian for X amount of years. Why do I keep stumbling in this same way? Anybody? Oh, yeah, me, okay. Right? I wasn't asking for hands, but I guess maybe I am. Make myself feel better. 
Have you ever tried to defeat sin through self-loathing and beating yourself up, through deals with God? I've made those. Uh, Accountability partners, right? Only to fail and fail again and fall back into that same pattern again and say, what the heck? Why is this like this? What I want to sort of push today is the idea that the opposite of temptations is not purity. It's actually faithfulness. Purity is involved. Don't get me wrong. And we'll talk about that this week and next. But the opposite of temptation is faith. Faith in the gospel. Belief in God and the good news of Jesus. If you have a copy of the scriptures, turn with me to James 1. We're going to pick up in verse 12. Verse 12 is sort of this hinge verse between the first section that we talked about in suffering and this next section that James talks about in uh, dealing with temptations. So uh, read along with me here in verse 12. Blessed is the one, or blessed or happy, all right, is often what that means. Happy is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn or dragged away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So verse 12 there, blessed is he who endures trials. What James is doing here, like I said, is making this connection between enduring trials and suffering to now withstanding temptations. It's actually the same root word there, trials and temptations. All throughout the New Testament, you see these words translated different ways depending on the context. You know, Jesus went through trials. Jesus was tempted. Well, we go through trials and things that are troubling, and we go through things that are tempting. And then so it's, it's the same word depending on the context. But what James is trying to move here is from this idea of trials that are outside of us that we all will face outside of us, to these temptations, these trials that come from inside of us, all right? There's this external thing that happens that he's calling them to endure through, and there's these internal things called temptations that happen inside of us, and we all have them. And, and whether it's the, um, the neon light type temptations, right, of, uh, you know, like, I mean, you could name them, right? Lust, right? We, we will identify lust, looking at things that we shouldn't, coveting things we shouldn't. You know, the temptation to, uh, to, to overeat, to, to get drunk, right? We know those. The temptation to steal, to lie, to, to cheat on a test or something, or cheat at work, or cheat on your spouse. Those are like the glaring ones, right? They're the neon light, right? The, the, the neon light ones. But then there's the more innocent temptations, right? To get angry, to just lose our cool, right? At a friend, a spouse, a kid. To get grumpy, just be pessimistic about everything. And I would argue, and I'm not going to, 
I would say to overly worry to the point of being spun up and anxious. I'm not talking about anxiety, okay? This is a, that's a diagnosable thing. I'm not talking about, I just mean where you allow yourself to just worry and worry and worry and you spin up and you're, there's no longer faith in God, right? This temptation for many of us. So let's, let's talk about just the, sort of the idea of temptation. Like, what is it? Well, temptation is a temptation. Temptation exists uh, because of our double-minded desire to act outside of God's wisdom that leads to destruction. We have these double-minded, this is, this is a theme you're going to see this all throughout James, single-minded versus double-minded. This, this is all throughout his, his letter. We have these double-minded desires inside of us to act outside of God's wisdom, outside of God's provision. And when we do that, the scriptures say it leads to destruction. It leads to dying and the ultimate death. And so double-minded is this idea, he uses these words of being, these desires are deceitful, they're, they're tricky, they're shadowy. And they're inside of all of us. And he wants to make that clear, right? Like, where does temptation come from? He's saying it doesn't come from God. That God can't be tempted. There is no evil in God. God would not tempt us. He's not trying to tempt us into sin, What he's making clear is that it comes from our flesh, as Paul calls it. All throughout the New Testament, we see this this idea of the flesh versus the spirit, walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. And what James is saying is he's echoing what Paul says is that we're, we're walking in, or these desires come from inside of us, from our flesh that produces these evil desires that are outside of God's provision, outside of what God does to care for his people. And something I'm going to come back to next week, I think, is this idea that inside of us is this root that produces the fruit of sin. There's these these evil fleshly desires inside of us at the root that end up producing this fruit of sin. And what, what James is being clear about and what scripture is really clear about is that we are wholly responsible for it. We are all broken in this way. There's this internal desire to walk away from God, this internal uh, double-minded desire to not take God's wisdom, to not see things from his perspective and try to be autonomous and provide for ourselves, whether it's our own significance, whether it's our own security, our own uh, approval and love that we get out in the world. It's, it's all of our internal corrupt desires to get these things for ourselves rather than receiving it from God. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This goes all the way back to the first sin of Humanity is saying, I'm going to provide for myself. I don't need you. Thank you very much. That's at the root of our corrupt desires. That's at the root of what tempts us. And so that's this thing that, that, that's inside of us that says, ah, you know what? I want to get that for myself. I want to provide for myself in that way. And you know who loves to prey upon that? The devil, the enemy of God, the Satan. However you want to read it in scripture, he's not just some little pitchfork carrying red character that sits on your shoulder. It's the enemy of God that wants to destroy God's creation. He wants to destroy you and me. And so he's really good at whispering these lies to us that just appeal to our corrupt desires. And then we're tempted by it and we say, ah, yeah, you know what? I should go and eat from that tree. Look at John eight forty four. Jesus speaking to a group of Pharisees, really good religious people 
who knew the law, listen to how he describes Satan. He says, you, this is great. Jesus does not mince words, particularly with the religious. Uh, John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil. Yikes. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. From the very beginning, Satan is the enemy of God, spewing these lies towards humanity, appealing to their fleshly corrupt desires so that they will walk away from God. And we find ourselves in this place. Peter tells us in his epistle of 1 Peter 5.8, he says, The devil is like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. Our enemy is against us, but friends, he can only appeal to what? Our flesh. <laughs> These corrupt, broken desires inside of us that find his lies appealing. And so whether it's solely our flesh that is deceiving us or the devil himself, it is our deceitful flesh and desires that are corrupted and sinful. And we need to face this reality that there's this internal problem that we need an outside solution for, right? We are responsible for enduring and withstanding temptation, which we can never do of our own. We're responsible for giving in, which we do regularly. So here's the thing. Temptation. Let's just think about this a little bit more. Temptation in and of itself isn't the bad thing. Isn't the sinful thing. It becomes sin when it's acted upon. Does that make sense? You can be tempted to something and not sin. You can be tempted to something and say, yep, I'm going to take that for myself. Now I'm going to provide for myself. I want that. And we move into sin. Desires, these corrupt desires, they trick us. They trap us. The word here is like this idea of bait that they're using to lure in a fish, lure in an animal. Right? Our desires do this inside of us, and it leads us, if we fall into it and give into it, it leads us to death. Dying now and death ultimately. Like, think about um, a temptation to eat chocolate cake. I'm not a chocolate cake guy. Like, it just doesn't do it for me. Chocolate cake could sit on the counter for a week, and I'm like, meh. Like, now, there was Cinnabon there. I'd eat four of them. Just as I have the habits of, like, a very large man, I just get away with it somehow. But anyway, whole other thing. If chocolate cake is sitting there, I'm not necessarily tempted by it. But let's just say that we all collectively were tempted by the chocolate cake, by the snack that's on the counter, right? There's no sin in being tempted by that. I'm saying, okay, then that's fine. It's a good thing. I would like to eat that. But if we've made a commitment to not eat that because of unhealth in us or something, or we've, we've told our spouse, we're not going to eat that. We're going to save that last piece for you. That temptation turns into sin when we, and we eat it, right? That's, then it becomes a problem. Then it becomes problematic for us. And insert whatever analogy you want there, whatever word picture you want in that situation, whether it's, you know, having uh, one beer as opposed to six at the party, right? Whether, uh, you know, it's, it's looking at a person and finding them attractive or it's fantasizing about them, right? That's the difference between temptation and actually giving into it and taking something that's not ours to take, that God doesn't necessarily provide for us, that God didn't necessarily want for us. So it appeals to our double-minded desires that say, well, maybe that would make me feel better. 
the little high that we get from whatever that thing is that we start dabbling in. That need for approval, that significance we're trying to secure for ourselves. Or, you know, we, we eat that chocolate cake because of a sense of failure at work or in our upbringing or in our relationship or, you know, whatever it is, it's this double-minded desire that appeals to us and says, you could have it better if you just did that. It's not, it's only a temptation until it becomes the thing that we move into and say, yeah, I want, I'm going to take that. And then it becomes this sin. In, in his book, uh, Live No Lies, which I'm going to talk about, uh, John Mark Comer talks about having mental maps. These mental maps, these grooves that we get into, these ruts that we get into mentally and in our, in our hearts, that we just keep falling back into them because we're like, yep, that'll provide good for me. And then we fall back into it. And then when we get in there, we realize, oh, this is sin. This is brokenness. This is actually leading to death. I don't really like this. But then it comes back up again, and man, we get dragged away by it. We fall into it all over again. Same thing year after year. We're like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe this time it will provide life for me. We get dragged away, hooked like a fish on a piece of bait. Because our mental maps carved out a route for us to go down that way. And then what James tells us is that when we do this, when we give into this temptation, we fall into this sin, it gives birth to sin, right? Which then gives birth to death. He's using these like really good word pictures for us to see what's happening, that there's this, this thing being conceived inside of us, that this desire conceives. And when we take the bait, fall for the temptation, something happens in us called sin. And then that sin, when it is fully grown, the verb there he uses has to do with telos, when it is fully matured, fully perfected, when it comes to its full being, it gives birth to death. And I would argue that it's death in life. Like now, in this moment, it becomes dying for us or it's death in eternity, separation from God. This is what the devil wants for all of us is to cave to sin, walk away from God, die now, enter into destruction now and for eternity with him. You see, think about it. You're with me in this, right? You know it when you actually slow down and think about it, that the more we give into temptation, the more we become full of death. The more we, there's the self-loathing that comes from that, the frustration that comes from that, the guilt that comes from that, the tears that come from that. And yet, what do we do? We keep falling for it. The devil's perfectly happy with this plan, that we keep giving into our flesh. And like this diagnosis that my friend had, if he doesn't, if we don't do something about it, if we don't fight against it somehow, it, it causes this dying inside of us, from the inside out. And then what it leads to for people that don't want to walk with Jesus, who don't want to take on his new life that he promises through his death and resurrection, it leads to an eternity of death. C.S. Lewis talks about this. Donald Miller talks about this. That the more we give into death and dying in this life, the further we get from God, like floating off into a distant piece of space, the ultimate death outside of the presence of God, all because of these internal desires that are just broken, corrupt, deceitful, tricky. Our flesh is full of this sin. So what is our hope in the midst of this? How do we deal with this internal problem that leads to dying now and death forever? Well, James talks about it. He says, God is the father of lights. Verse 17, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, 
who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we could be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, his creation. He's saying our hope is in God, the father of lights, as opposed to the father of lies. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be double-minded, tricking yourself in to falling for these temptations, but know God. Have his wisdom, we talked about last week. Pray to see things from his perspective. Ask him to give you this this single-minded focus and worship on him. And have his truth for your mental maps. Start to reform your brain. Start to rewire yourself to desire the good things that he provides, the good things that he promises. Identify what gives life and what gives death. And what he's trying to tell us, James is, and Paul says in different ways, is that God is the giver of good gifts. That God provides for us all that we need. That he is the creator who has all things at his disposal and says, I want good for you. And isn't that the ultimate deception of the devil to say, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. God, God doesn't want good for you. You better get it for yourself. And what James is saying, no, he's the father of lights, of purity, of truth. And he gives good gifts from above. He's, he's full of light. He's not like those shifting shadows. He's the, he's the constant source of light in the midst of darkness and chaos around us. And he gives perfect gifts. Again, this word shows up in the Greek, telos. This, he gives this, this gift that comes to maturity. This maturing, perfecting gift from above. Whereas sin matures and completes into death, God matures and completes with his perfect gift into life. We receive the crown of life, right? Now and forever. So what is this gift? What are these these gifts that come from above? He gives us new birth in truth, in the word, which is Jesus. Jesus is the gift from above. The gift of all gifts that the father of lights bestows on his creation. It's the same word there when he says these gifts from above that God gives. It's the same word that Jesus uses with Nicodemus. In John 3, when he says, you must be born from above. He's saying there's this external thing that needs to come into your life to give you hope of resurrection, to give you hope of redemption, to give you any hope of purity, to give you any hope of ignoring those lies of your flesh and of the devil. He's saying, James is saying, God is a good giver of gifts and he gives the perfect gift, which is Jesus. And in him, you have new birth. You are made New, you are conceived in a new way. You are reborn. This is where the term born again comes from. You are born anew. And now in your spiritual life, in this this new birth that, that comes about in your life, you actually have power over your flesh. You're no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer a slave to give in to those deceitful desires. You can actually reform your mental maps to say, I'm not gonna pick that anymore. The sinful flesh is not as powerful as the new birth in Jesus. And so part of our hope has to begin, if we're going to deal with temptation and we're going to endure, part of it has to begin in seeing that we have been given a good gift. 
and recognizing the good news, recognizing the gospel, that Jesus is our source of new life. He is our source of truth. And when we live in his truth, we will live no lies. That's where this, this book gets its title. We will live no lies. I want to read something. I skipped it earlier. I, I, I love this book. I highly recommend it. I, if you're watching online, I put three different books in the notes section that you can click on, put hyperlinks to the evil overlord Amazon. You can read that. If, I mean, you can get those books if you want to put three different books. Well, one, Live No Lives by John Mark Comer. Another one called The Good and Beautiful God by James Bryant Smith. Um, and another book called Gospel Fluency by uh, Jeff Vanderstelt. I'm going to talk about them next week. I just want, I'm going to read this. Uh, the devil's lies aren't just random, untrue facts with no emotional value. He doesn't say, hey, you, Christian, Elvis is still alive. Believe it. Okay, who cares? That has no emotional bearing on my life. A quick Google search and my mind can easily sort this into the lie category. But what about this one? Hey, you, you deserve to be happy. And let's face it, you haven't been happy in your marriage in years. Your wife just isn't the right fit for you. It happens. You married way too young before you were self-aware, and this marriage just isn't what you hoped it would be. But if you were to divorce her, I'm sure there's someone else who would be a better fit and would make you happy. This is just as flagrant of a con as saying that Elvis is still alive. A cursory Google search of the research on long-term relationships will expose the dark comedy of it. But to be vulnerable, this one touches on some deep fracture in my soul where I'm torn. Here, this deceitful desire inside of us that says life could be better. Maybe I should just go get this for myself. A part of me wants to honor my incredible wife and stay faithful to my wedding vows, to let the power of the marriage covenant shape me into a man who is increasingly free of my need to get what I want. But another part of me, my flesh, just wants to live a feel-good, easy life, chasing the fantasy of sex and romance over the horizon. As you can imagine, only a few conspiracy theorists fall for the Elvis kind of lie. But many of us are vulnerable to the second. As a pastor, I have front row seats to watch the before and after of a lie's entrance into a soul. And not to scare you, but it's gut-wrenching. I use the example of you'll be happier if you get a divorce because it's so common. I see it all the time. And I would insert there as a pastor, you'll be happier if you get a better job. You'll be happier if you get a bigger house. You'll be happier if you have more money. You'll be happier if your kids just behave well. You'll be happier if they just get a scholarship. You'll be like, the list is long. I see it all the time. While every marriage is its own story, I watch so many people initiate a divorce in a desire to be happy, but end up even more miserable. Many of them carry regret to their graves. You see, nobody sins out of duty or discipline. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, ah, it's Tuesday, 7 a.m., time to look at porn. I don't really want to, but it's just the right thing to do. I read Atomic Habits by James Clear, and I've made a commitment to become a lustful kind of person. Habit stacking is the key if I ever want to work up to my long-term dream of serial infidelity and a low capacity for intimacy. It's a funny quote. It's, no, of course not. We sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order, is credited with defining sin as unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is my only deepest happiness. This is why the devil's primary target is our trust in God and his truth as it comes to us in scripture. If he can get us to doubt God, if he can get us to doubt God and instead trust our own inner intuition as an accurate compass to the good life, he has us. 
Our only hope is in believing the good news of God. In believing that he actually wants our joy, that he wants our full life. And he knows that it comes through resisting sin and through embracing the gospel. And really the order should be embracing the gospel and resisting sin. But we actually trust that he has good things for us, starting with Jesus. And when we believe that, we actually have the weapons that we need to fight against the flesh. He gives us his spirit to be able to discern, oh, you know what? That's not truth. I'm not going to choose into that. The new birth is more powerful than the sinful flesh. The new birth gives us the spirit and a single-mindedness towards God and the ability to resist the double-mindedness of those deceitful desires that trick us and carry us away. So resisting temptation, the opposite is not purity, it's faith. Faith in the gospel, believing that what God says is true and that he wants our good. In Ephesians 4, Paul Paul says similar things in multiple places about the idea of throwing off the old life. But he says this in Ephesians 4, verse 20. But that is not how uh, you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him when you were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. You hear that? The truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by what? Deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. He's saying we have this ability to take off the old self and say no more. I'm going to live into this reality over here that I've, been, I've become a son or a daughter of the living God because of what Jesus has accomplished for me. And so I'm going to repent of believing in those lies and believe in this truth over here. And friends, the truth is readily available to us in scripture, through prayer in the spirit, through the community walking with us saying, this is truth for you. This is why I encourage people to be in community groups. This is why I encourage people to be in discipleship groups is to allow other people to speak truth to us when we start believing lies. See, as Americans, we're so quick to say, hey, you know what you should do? Stop doing that. You should stop doing that. It doesn't work. We need somebody to stop our thinking, our mental map, and say, you're believing a lie about God. Believe this truth instead. And then you see transformation start to happen. Belief leads to identity, leads to behavior, not vice versa. We can't just micromanage the behavior and make everybody everybody better. We need to believe the truth and the very core of it in the new birth that we've been given. And then we find the behavior flows out of that. John Mark Comer, I'll read this one last thing. He says, to repent and believe simply means to rethink your mental maps of what you think will lead you to a happy life and trust in those of Jesus himself. I can't help but get into some of what I'm going to talk about next week. I'm just going to do it just for a second. For me to resist temptation... I'm trying to boil this down. This is what I mean by this. For me to resist temptation means, like a first responder, like a fireman, I have to make a plan before I go into it. Away from the sin, away from the moment, away from the flames, I have to make a plan that says, when I go into this situation, I'm going to believe this and not this. 
So that when, when that person disrespects me in this way, I'm not going to try to acquire it for myself and get angry and resentful. I'm going to believe over here that in Jesus, he has all the respect that I need and I'm in him. So that when this person disrespects me, I'm not tempted to sin and try to take it for myself and get angry and lash out. It's actually believing that the full life is in Christ and saying, I don't need to earn it for myself or get it for myself in this way over here. So insert whatever sin pattern you have in your life over there and say, okay, away from it in this moment, what do I need to do? What truth do I need to believe about Jesus at my core, about who I am in him, so that when that thing does come up and is tempting to me, I don't need to keep believing the lie that I need to get it for myself. Does that make sense? And so it starts with belief. This is why I'm saying the opposite of temptation is not just right behavior. The opposite of temptation is faith. Faith in the gospel that says, okay, you've given me everything that I need. I do not need to get it in this way through drinking too much, through overeating, through trying to get my mom's approval, through trying to get this better job at work so my boss thinks I'm great, through uh, looking at porn so I feel better and some kind of release. I have everything that I need in Jesus. That's the truth. You keep piling up that pile of truth and it starts to, the scale starts to tip. And you say, I don't need to pick that anymore. I don't need to choose that anymore. Does this make sense? It starts with belief and faith in who? The father of lights. The giver of good gifts, the gift from above that is Jesus himself that gives us the new birth. Friends, we will always battle the flesh. The beauty is at 43 years old, I can look back and say, man, 10 years ago, I was a little less transformed than I am now. Praise God. And I look forward to 53 when maybe I'll be a little bit more transformed. I'll be a little bit more free from those sins that so evilly beset us, right? It's a journey. There's nothing that says you're going to be perfect right now and have it all done. Little steps. I'm, take, I'm doing the work. Baby steps, right? What's that from? It's a Bill Murray movie. Anyway. What about Bob? That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Just baby steps, a little bit at a time. Believe a little bit more today, a little bit more today. And you'll see the behavior start to change and flow out of that. We will always need to confess, but we can grow and it can give birth to new life now and eternally. So we respond to the word of truth in faith and it produces righteousness. It produces a single-mindedness towards the father as opposed to responding to the flesh that continues to be these shifting shadows and this deceitfulness that tricks us and carries, away, carries us away and leads us into death. So we need to monitor that reality of that inward sickness that we have. And we need to regularly inject the gospel into it to say, be done with that. Be done with that. Be done with that. I'm not going to pick that anymore. We need to check our motives and say, why did I sin in that way? What was my motive behind that? How do I speak the truth of the gospel into that so I don't keep picking that thing? So I don't keep believing those lies and actually live in truth. And when we do that, this is what the Bible means when it says his mercies are new every morning. We wake up and say, it's a new day. It's a new day. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel today. Help me believe it a little bit more. And we Lay down at night and say, hey, you know, I stumbled in that way. What was I not believing about Jesus in that? What lie was I believing? All right, I don't want to do that again tomorrow. I'm going to think differently. I'm going to believe differently. It's a journey, friends. So look, this, this is uh, an incomplete talk. And I realized that that's why it's for next week. Uh, next week in the passage that we're going to cover, James says, um, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers actually put these things into practice. So I'm going to get real practical next week. There's going to be charts on the board. 
It's going to be great. It might even be a whiteboard. I don't know. I don't know what might happen. It might be craziness in here. But all that to say, I understand. It, it, I would think that the, this leaves a little lacking. Okay, I understand that. So watch online next week. Listen. Come and be here in person. I'd lie and promise pizza, but I'm not going to do that again. But just be here. And be on this journey with us as we try to look at what does it mean to actually be doers of the word, to actually put truth into practice and see it shape my life, to see my behaviors come out of it. Because temptation is resistible, friends. It really is. Not through purity, not through religious legalism, but through the gospel of living in Christ, being reborn in him, and then taking step by step in him. Would you pray with me?